Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with Amir Nathu. Amir is the founder and CEO of OutSchool. Uh, OutSchool is an ed tech platform that inspires kids to love learning, which uh, as the parent of three teenagers, I can say is sometimes a tall order, uh, but a very important and worthy mission. Uh, Amir, welcome to the Daily Bolster. Thanks. It's great to be talking to you, Matt. Um, yeah, so let's dive in. So you're um, a three-time founder. Um, I'd love to start at um, what at least LinkedIn says is the beginning of your career. So I don't know if you did anything before uh, what you recorded on LinkedIn, um, but uh, five years at IBM um, doing software development before you started your first company. Um, so IBM, one of the largest companies in the world, one of the sort of most venerable uh, you know, and, and at different points in time, revered companies and feared companies and technology, uh, but a very different place, you know, in the 2000s than it was in the second half of the um, of the 1900s, 20th century. Um, so we'd love to hear just a couple minutes about sort of what that experience was like and kind of how, how you got from there to, I want to go start something, like how you get from the multi-hundred thousand person company um, to the raw startup. Yeah, I'll happy have to share my journey there. And you know, in in some sense, it was really the other way around. It was almost that I always wanted to start a software company from oh. a young age. And um, at the time, IBM seemed like the best path to get there. And it was really because I wanted to get into software. And at the time in the UK, where I grew up, as you can probably tell from my accent, um, you know, there wasn't many places you could do serious software development. Um, and so when I was graduating, knowing kind of this ambition of getting into software and probably going and starting my own business in software, you know, IBM had a, had a software development lab that was very highly regarded, a large one um, in the south of England in a place called Winchester. And so, you know, I definitely approached my um, time at IBM saying, I want to get into software. This is a great place to start. And I want to learn as much as possible about you know, software, how it's built, you know, the business of software um, as possible. Um, and, you know, the, the inspiration for, for that, just wanting to get into software was, I was ex very fortunate to be exposed to computers very early. Um, first through games, uh, you know, my parents buy me a BBC Micro as a toy and then, you know, teaching myself how to program and getting support as a kid for that journey. Um, so, you know, so software was the start and then I IBM was the starting point in, in my career. And it was foundational in, in many ways. You know, I joined the um, software development group in level three support, which was kind of the engineers who are tasked with, um, you know, when, once it's established that there's a bug going on and maybe a live production system that's down and it's a problem that can't be worked around, it needs a bug fix. You know, someone needs to like code up that fix and kind of address the problem. So it was a combination of software engineering and customer support. And I really enjoyed it because I established that I was actually a hacker. And instead of having to actually like develop things in the normal process, you'd be up at two in the morning, you're like hot patching a live banking system. And I don't know where any, any other, you know, company where you could end up with a, a 20 something year old uh, responsible for delivering a live patch, not going through any of the normal QA procedures, but just trying yeah. to get a, a live production system. Yeah. It's, sort of, it's, like, it's like the equivalent of being like, you know, like a triage nurse in an ER. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, no, it was it was a lot of fun. I, honestly, in retrospect, I didn't fully understand the stakes <laughs> play for for the people on the other side. But I, I guess maybe that was a little bit of a help. It was more like a fun game. Like let's get this patched as quickly as possible and move on. Um, yeah, no, that's interesting. So, and I love I love your point about you know sort of went the other way around. You wanted to start something, but you wanted that experience first. So, you were at IBM in the UK for five years. Um, what was the signal that you were ready? To start something or was it just that you had the idea and then um you made a big move geographically at the same time yeah totally and i, I guess you know the the trajectory there was kind of a process of getting sucked in and then um finding impetus to pull myself out because you know when you're at the start of your career and your first job as i was then obviously you, you have very little context so there was a time i thought oh this is this is cool this is going well i'm doing well yeah, maybe actually I, I I stay at IBM for a period of time and, and explore different roles. Um, I did explore different roles. I, I spent some time on the consulting side. I got them to put me through their sales school. Um, I was the only kind of person coming from an engineering background, like going through the IBM sales school, which was very highly regarded and intensive course at the time. And so I was getting sucked in. But one turning point for me was when IBM acquired a company based in Silicon Valley and span up a an engineering team uh, in the UK to kind of partner with um, that uh, that startup company to kind of share knowledge. And I started to realize a bit more about the structure of what was going on here. It's like, oh, the innovation is happening outside of IBM in these startup companies. IBM is buying them and putting them through this awesome, like scalable QA system and global sales system. But actually the kind of exciting part from working with that which I thought was on the other side. And that reminded me of my original aspirations um, and uh, made visible to me some of the kind of uh, both the advantages and limitations of being in a big company like IBM. And so it crystallized for me and also the realization that five years had passed. And, um, you know, I, I, I had the belief, which has maybe softened a bit, that if you're going to do this, you better do this soon. You know, life is short. You have a lot of energy when you're young. I read enough books. I was thinking, crap, you know, sure, I've learned a lot, but isn't this just a crutch now that I'm I'm five years into IBM and I'm not not yet done it? And a mentor also kind of like pointed this out to me. It's like, eh, you know, most people who do it do it young and like and you know, obviously it's uh yeah, anyone who's been through the process of leaving a stable job and starting a company knows the psychological pressure that can come and the realization that it was that that was holding me back, not a lack of idea, not a lack of financial resources. You know, I I came from a very modest background. I had barely any savings, but I, I eventually concluded that none of this was a blocker to, to leaving and starting a company. Yeah. Um, and so I left uh, with an idea and a friend who left sh shortly afterwards to, to join with. Um, and we funded ourselves by consulting on the side, consulting part-time, um, which worked quite well, um, was very interesting, was unsatisfying in terms of how quickly we could learn and develop the startup. And so we started looking for funding and in the UK at that time, you know, no one had made money investing in the internet, <laughs> whereas in Silicon Valley, lots of people had made money investing in the right, internet. Right, right. And so it was like, um, you know, pulling teeth, trying to extract uh, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars from angel investors in London. And we happened to come across Y Combinator in the early days and said, oh, we'll throw in an application. And like they invite us for interview and 20 minutes later offered us a $20,000 check. And that was just inc an incredible experience. You know, now it's like, oh, well, that happens all the time in Silicon Valley, but like 
back then from you know founding team from the UK, I was like, holy shit, like there's money growing trees in this place. <laughs> yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know some of the reasons why and the whole business model behind right. it, obviously. But yeah, just so it was yeah, very eye-opening. And um we came over for three months of the Y Combinator program. And I both fell in love with the ecosystem in Silicon Valley from a work perspective and San Francisco and the Bay Area as a place. Came back to the UK and told my wife, we should move. <laughs> and that was, that's a, yes. How did that go over? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't very polished at change management. Let me let me put it that way um, back there. I'm still not particularly polished, but very unpolished. It was like more like, I have this idea. We should like upend our lives and move to the Bay Area. Um but yeah, it was funny. Um, uh, we yeah, it took a while, both from a visa perspective and just like you know a life perspective, and persuade my wife that this would be a good adventure. What did it was a three week vacation to the Bay Area, hmm. uh, where we did a road trip around the one. It was beautiful. Obama got elected. This was um, in in two thousand and eight, um, and it, it was just a it was just a fantastic vacation. And you know, uh, my wife Kirsty woke up one morning and said, you know what? I'm down for an adventure. Like, you know, when we're not, we're not ready to kind of like settle in life and just be who we are right now. Um, right. And so it was fundamentally that desire for adventure that even underlies any kind of professional aspiration um, that, that, and, you know, we, we, we framed it initially as a one to two year adventure. And now, you know, we've been here, you know, several companies later and 14 years later, American citizens to American kids. So it did turn into, into an adventure. Yes, I uh, I always tell people not quite as far away, but I grew up on the West Coast. I'm in New York. I always tell people I'm on year 35 of my two-year plan to uh, try. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, so what was WebMind all about? Uh, it looks like it was about a three-year run, um, and then and then it looks sort of date-wise like it either had a successor company and trigger. Or uh, you sort of went straight from one to the other. So we'd love to hear a little bit about your first couple companies, which uh, you know are, are very very different uh, in nature than than what you've landed on at OutSchool. Hundred percent. And technically, it was one company, but it was a hard pivot that could easily have been a, a separate company. In retrospect, probably should have been. Um, so it's it's fair to frame them as as two different companies. And you know, even even pre WebMind, there was a kind of quagmire of ideas in the kind of early days of. YC that, that turned into WebMind. Um, but what WebMind was, um, was a way to um, save and access your entire browsing history and use it to personalize your search. Because back in those days, um, you know, Google search was obviously a big thing, but things like Google Drive and um, local search hadn't really been developed. So searching across all your information, including behind logins and on your personal computer, was obscured. And so the concept was, um, you know, a browser extension that would record your activity, including behind logins. And then when you did searches, took over the right-hand side of Google and um, display uh, search results that Google couldn't possibly display uh, from your own information from your browsing history. And, you know, this was an intriguing concept to the same kind of people who maybe use Delicious, if you remember that service, or people who like organizing their information. Yeah, and really that was, uh, that was Albert. Uh Right, that was Albert Wenger. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. Yeah, and Joshua Schechter was the founder. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, right. I don't know Joshua, but inspired by that, that kind of thinking. I worked on content management systems, enterprise content management systems at, at IBM. Um, and, and so there was kind of continuity with that idea of kind of methods of content management, methods of retrieval and organization. 
And we stumble upon this business model where, hang on, we're taking over the right-hand side of Google for these search results. Well, that's really valuable real estate. <laughs> Affiliate links and ads is the obvious, obvious place to go. Though in retrospect, probably given the size of the audience that was interested in that kind of tools, we, we probably should have gone freemium as a, as a route. Um, but we explored that for, for a while and yeah, we, we got to some decent size of revenue. The problem with the business, I think, was the you know, twofold, one that I've already alluded to. I think there's a limited number of people who are truly kind of geeking out about that kind of information retrieval and really organizing their information. Um, it's a limited market. And we also learned, we saw the companies like Conduit, which at the time was big browser toolbar company, and the, the motions you had to exercise in order to get this toolbar distributed and then monetized end up being super sketchy. I mean, I think it was all legal. It's just like it turned our stomach. Yeah, you know, like, I, I mean, it's like yes. IE toolbars and then like like secretly replace the Google page with like your own search page to harvest ad revenue. I mean, sure, like that can work. I mean, I guess it's legal because companies did it, but it wasn't the way we wanted to, you know, make money, create a business. Fair enough. Um, and then how'd the business do? So um, relatively small scale of revenue, um, you know, we raised a little bit of money. It, it was survivable, but we... We decided to pivot because you know, this, we didn't see a path to scale and all, and all the paths to scale were not what we wanted to do with our time. So basically, we as founders lost faith that this is what we wanted to do and um, the, the size of the opportunity. But what we had built in the process of building WebMind was infrastructure that allowed us to create these toolbars that worked on multiple browsers at the same time with, um, uh, without needing to code them multiple times. And um, at the time we were uh, thinking about pivoting, mobile platforms were taking off. So the App Store, Android, the, the, the Google Play Store, and mobile development was the hot thing. That was the area everyone wanted, wanted to, to build in. And a realization occurred was that the same problems that we had addressed with toolbars were present with mobile applications. And we realized we had this framework which could be applied to mobile apps to say, code once using this framework and set of APIs and build service, and we will create you, you know, native iOS and Android apps and potentially other platforms down the line. Um, you know, faster speed to support more platforms. And so we pivoted and changed our name to trigger.io, which was a um, framework and built cloud build service for de uh, developing native mobile apps while um, coding in JavaScript. Um, and that was a better, a better startup and a, a better attempt where we got to got to greater scale um, because you know it definitely met the moment in terms of user need, um, and um, you know it was a very different business though because we'd be operating like a consumer business with a you know ad and affiliate business model, and now we were doing you know small business and increasing like enterprise sales while building dev tools, um, but. You know, our empathy for the problem, our connection with the problem was much closer because we'd experienced it ourselves. So we were kind of nearing, kind of getting more towards kind of founder um, product market fit and having successfully identified an urgent need, yeah. which was in a much kind of more visceral and way than our, than our first attempt. And by the way, founder market fit is huge. Totally. It's so important. It, it is one of the things that we're very fortunate we have at Bolster, uh, right? We have a whole team of scaled senior executives helping other companies drive teams of scaled senior executives. And it's uh, it's way more meaningful for us 
than running Return Path. A lot of us did both companies, even though we loved Return Path. It was a great company. It was a great company, good business, but none of us ever used the product. The product didn't mean something to us personally. Um, and that, that's a big, big difference. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think going into startups, it was more like the first mission was, I want to found a company because I want to be successful and creative and take a different path. Right. And then with Trigger, it's more like, yeah, I still want those things, but kind of like, we need to solve a problem here. We, we don't want to be off on the sidelines. We want to be doing something valuable for people. Yeah. And we've identified something that seems to be valuable to people and have the proof points to do right. that. And we have some experience of, of why it's valuable because we've experienced it for ourselves. So it was kind of a different mentality. I think it's that, that hard pivot. Yeah. All right. So you're three years as WebMind, hard pivot, three years at Trigger.io. And so how did the second three years go? So um, it was a lot of fun. Um, and we made a lot of progress. Um, we raised more money. In retrospect, we should probably have done a hard reset and just done it as another company because there really was, you know, limit. We, we could have built it all from the ground up with learnings. But at the time, it felt kind of scarier to do that and, and easier to, to persist with the, the corporate entity. Um, but you know, we raised more money. Um, we went after this opportunity. We scaled sales um, initially by targeting other startups um, who you know, were busy, kind of a lo lot of new startups build, building mobile development apps. And we built a team um, larger than before. Um, and um, yeah, we got PR and we scaled revenue further than we had before. Um, Two things came to light in the journey that started to make us kind of concerned about scale and actually gradually kind of top out um, at a certain point. One was a market um, uh, a market reality. You know, part of the thesis of Trigger was that there was going to be consolidation in how mobile app developers developed the front end of their apps. And that consolidation was going to happen via some kind of cross-platform development mechanism. And we wanted to be the one. And one thing we observed is that did not happen. Um, mobile web developers used a variety of different frameworks, including no framework at all. And actually no framework at all was the, was the central competition. And another observation was while we identified a real customer need and urgent problem and concrete ROI, the front end of a mobile was almost regarded as so important that's not clear you kind of outsource elements of it and, and get help is almost like it's so important you want to kind of use the best which is native and invest so you're always playing this uphill battle and that's in contrast with the back end where you saw all these back ends as a services rise and there to be much more consolidation on the back end and one thing i learned through that process is, it was that yes it's important to identify a real tangible customer need but you also have to think about kind of the barriers to buy and you don't necessarily want to go for the hottest part of the need first because it could be so important to the customer that the um you know the barriers to, to get started were will be so high it's sometimes better to go after a, a real need but that's kind of easier to outsource i, I just a typical example like an example I, I used to use at the time was like logging there were these platforms and services that started doing ridiculous revenue from my perspective you're doing logging is that really a need it's like well, you need to do it. It's considered a hygiene feature. Is it that? Is it the most important thing? No, it's not the most important, but you kind of just need to do it. And no one really wants to spend be spending that energy there. So it's easy to go to a vendor and say, please provide me infrastructure to improve logging. Right, right. and all and, of a sudden it's Auth0 and Okta. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then expand from that. And it's like, oh, like just because you found a critical customer need, you doesn't actually mean it's the right strategy to go head on at that need. Yeah. And actually that influenced a lot of how I think about the strategy at OutSchool.
um, because kids' education is obviously a very high stakes decision for uh, for parents. And that was a, that was a key part of it. We also made some execution mistakes. Um, you know, intentionally slowing down our growth because it felt out of control in terms of our ability to deliver on the demand, which I now realize is like a, a, a standard evidence of product market fit. And yeah, you don't want to go too far out of control. And there are stories about startups that take that too far. Yeah. Um, but actually, that's something to lean into. And 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 we slowed growth more than we should have. And it was we never recovered momentum. And it, um, and that made me conscious much more about the momentum management behind growth. And just because I don't know things are feeling uncomfortable, uh, um, you know, inside the company and in how you're able to deliver and in support doesn't mean you slow down. Right. Um, it's, it means you kind of fix as you go along, and you have to find the right kind of velocity um, to manage through. So that was a key kind of execution learning I took from that. Yeah. And what was the ending? So um, ultimately, we we plateaued um, based on these observations. And um, we decided that you know, this wasn't going to become, you know, we're hyper ambitious. This wasn't going to become like the breakout success. And so it makes sense to find some, some kind of exit. And also the realization, and it comes back to kind of founder fit. It's like we might have been a, a fit in terms of understanding the problem space and skills needed, but it wasn't actually our passion. Mm-hmm. So actually when looking for an outcome, it was actually like, we don't actually want to, we want to do right by our team. We want to do right by our investors. We actually want to craft an outcome here that we don't have to work on developer tools for the next two to five years. So it was quite intentional to go somewhere that would value what we'd built and the experiences that we gather on the way, but be in a completely different domain. And so we end up um, doing a deal with Square um, to acquire predominantly the team. Um, uh, and, okay. that is, so that answers my next question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, looking at your, again, at your, at your profile here, uh, my question was going to be, how on earth did you end up as the product lead for Square Payroll after being a founder and before being a founder. So uh, so presumably that's the quick answer. What was the experience like at Square? It was a roller coaster ride, a hell of a lot of fun. You know, um, at this point I'd spent, uh, what, six plus years feeling like, you know, in retrospect, making a lot of progress and learning, but at the time feeling like I was banging my head on a brick wall, <laughs> trying to like find initially find product market fit and get scaled. So to get involved in a company that was busy scaling and expanding, and then realize, oh, I could use all these learnings and skills that I developed as a founder to really hone my craft in products in particular was fantastic. And this was a time at Square when they were good, where they went I mean, my time there from like 400 people to 1,200 people in like, you know, 18 months. Right, right. And, so interesting. you know, coming through the back of a big fundraise, like expanding out of their core. And the reason they were interested in um, you know, bringing founding teams on was because they're doing a lot of expansion and, and you know, looking to scope out kind of new areas of business development. So, um, you know, that's how I ended up founding the, the Square Payroll product within within Square. This was a new area of expansion that I'd come in and um, identified. There was a lot of existing thinking, a lot of existing advantages they can use. Um so yeah, it was a it was a wild ride to be at that stage to see the chaos of the startup, and this was my first experience of a growth stage startup. So, you know, it felt um, kind of completely chaotic, and I was like, "What the hell is happening here? Like, this is like a terribly managed business." Like, right. you know, <laughs> and and um, and now I'm kind of running a growth stage company. I have a lot more understanding and empathy for the for the leaders at, at Square during that time. But it was just like, you know, mind blowing experience. Like, what this is the level of kind of 
disorganization and, and chaos, but you can't argue with the results. Like, and uh, you know, I, I learned something from that in terms of what what seemed to be the right ways of working and structure and organization, and actually, you know, kind of skirting the edge of chaos. It's kind of almost what you need to do in order to grow fast. What's um, the, what's the most important thing you learned? <laughs> well. Um, <laughs> uh, I learned about myself that if I'm going to be in a growth stage startup, I'd better blooming well be running the thing. <laughs> yes, I, didn't, right. I didn't laugh that long. You know, I, I came in with the best of intentions, like being, uh, I don't want to be one of those kind of jerk founders who comes in and just leaves after a relatively short amount of time. You know, I really want to learn, learn from the people and yeah. I did learn. Um, but I also had my eyes open to how much I could do. And I didn't really appreciate the skills that I had developed. Because when you're a founder, you know, it's hard to reflect. And I came in there and I realized I could do all these things, like, you know, not being afraid to pick up the phone to a customer as mm -hmm. a PM, not having to go through other teams, being more self-sufficient and um, all of that. Um, and honestly, I think my learnings from Square were a little bit in retrospect and almost in contrast. I'm not sure I fully appreciated the experience at the time. Um, but, you know, what, one of the key ones was around change and the, the rap, the uncomfortableness and rapidity of change. And, um, well, I guess relearning kind of some of the experiences I had with, uh, with trigger, which is that, that uncomfortableness, you know, chaos, even misalignment is a symptom of fast change. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong, um, as a business. And right. if you're, and if you're pushing hard enough and if you're moving fast enough, that's going to happen. And the work is just to, you know, keep working towards alignment, towards organization, towards, um, you know, towards that, um, you know, sense of control until you change it all again <laughs> before you get there. And that's, that's the kind of, that's the startup journey. And yeah. so seeing, seeing that was a, was a key line. So I have one other question. I'm not sure if the year, if the year you were there was one of these years. So the answer might be, you don't know, but I've always been, uh, fascinated by the notion that Jack Dorsey was the CEO of two very high profile, large companies at the same time for a few years. Um, so I don't know if that happened when you were there or after you left, but do you have any insight into how that worked? You know, it, it's funny. I, I don't actually um, remember whether that was the overlap, but the thing that I do remember and actually was, and uh, uh, now I remember was a key lane for me. I, I feel like I didn't work for Jack directly but I interacted with him and saw him and he was always very high level. And so it's not actually surprising to me that he'd be able to do that. And yeah. his superpower was as a visionary and a salesperson. And yeah, me and my co-founder had been brought in where we sat at the back of like weekly debriefs and Jack would be doing this, like his inspiring spiel. And one part of us would be like cynical Brits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we couldn't help but be taken along. And we just couldn't help it. He was just that kind of, you know, he would paint that picture. He, you know, even though a voice is so, so, that's unbelievable. That's crazy. Like, how are you even going to do that? Yeah. He do it so well that another part of you was brought brought along. And that and that kind of made me think in terms of how I realized that, yeah, you, know, you might hear these cynical voices when you're, you know, uh, inside yourself or from others when you're painting this picture of what the future could be. But that shouldn't stop you doing it because you are bringing people along. And yeah, you're going to encounter some cynicism and yeah, you're going to encounter doubt when you're trying to shoot after big things, but, but that shouldn't, shouldn't hold you back. And it's kind of an, an, a useful and necessary part of, of trying to do great things. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. So he did that really well, but you know, I, I, I have some questions then about how that was translated into execution, but I think the other thing that 
I saw from Jack was just he, he, he brought on brilliant people around him. And so, you know, successfully kind of filled in uh, for the other parts where, where maybe he wasn't so focused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and presumably he had really some strong operating executives or chief of staff or, you know, COO or head of HR or whatever that, that kind of kept the trains moving on time while he was being the visionary. Totally. Yeah. Totally. All right. So let's move to your current chapter. Uh, so 2015, uh, you start out school uh, with a mission of inspiring kids to love learning, which I absolutely love. Um, talk about out school. How did you get how did you get there from uh, square payroll? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, multiple influences. And, and by that point, I'd also gained the confidence to say, you know, there's certain criteria about picking what you might do next, but yes. it doesn't necessarily yes. have to be anything related to what you did before. There's some underlying criteria. And I didn't necessarily want to start another startup. I, I was aware of how hard it was. Um, uh, so I more framed it as taking a break and pursue projects. I was very intent on only starting a startup. It was kind of pulled out of me, like by customers, by my own enthusiasm, and being very conscious of not forcing it because I felt kind of I forced it trying to like chase some kind of dream or success in the past. Whereas this was like, eh, yeah, yeah, I have ideas, but this has to be something the world needs and it's kind of pulled out of me. And I was also conscious of really, I mean, what we kind of talked about, about founder fit, starting with my own motivation. Um, and at the time I did not have kids, but I knew I wanted to have kids soon. And I was also very conscious like, hey, like if you're going to do a startup and have kids, that's tough. But what if I could combine like my next thing with my life and like make it ruthless, relevant? Ruthless efficiency. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, well, it's hard. So I better be damn efficient and it better be useful for my, you know, and integrated with my, with my life. And that way reflect on education. And I don't know, honestly, why I hadn't reflected on education before. I guess, obviously, the thought of having kids got me thinking about it. But both my parents were teachers. Um, and I realized I had some strong views about education that I developed. And I hadn't really thought that through until I'd really thought, what do I want for my kids? And I was like, oh, I'm not sure what, what I had for my kids. All the elements of what I had that I do want for my kids. And I started realizing, you know, I, I, the things that I've used, the skills that I developed and needed as an entrepreneur, like how much did I really get that from traditional schooling and college? And even though I had the most fantastic education that you could get in, in the UK, and I started to realize so much of what I used was because of my parents and things I had pursued out, out of school. And yeah, that's where the name come from, like out of school learning. And in particular, just like my, my interest and love of software and the fact my parents supported that interest. I started to realize, huh, there's a discrepancy here. It seems like I'm sensing a discrepancy with, between what traditional education is designed to deliver and what I think is, it has been important for me. And then I'm reflecting on the future and what I learned about the changes in the world through technology. Like, I think this discrepancy is going to get worse. And I think there's going to be more parents of young kids like me now who are going to sense that discrepancy and want something different or additional. Um, and, and that's what kind of led me towards, you know, that's a set of motivation that led me towards education, led me towards thinking about out-of-school learning, going directly to consumers rather than selling into the traditional system. Also, another observation was technology had not really transformed education in a significant way. And there were not big exits and there were not, um, big success stories, really transformational innovation. Sure, there were some IPOs uh, selling it into the existence, but it was not a well-regarded or hot area. 
But I had this sense that there was this discrepancy growing between parents' satisfaction with traditional education, and but behavior hadn't changed yet. And I, I sensed that if there was going to be a time when there was going to be a seismic change, because when pressure builds up like that, when dissatisfaction increases, behavior is not changing, that's pressure building up. And there's going to be some catalysts. And if you can get the timing right, there's going to be, there's going to be a change here. Could you accelerate that change? Could you time it right? So I thought this could be, this, if the timing is right, if the model is right, this could be a massive opportunity. Key risks are market and, and timing. But then I thought I'm patient. You know, I've had enough success at this point. I don't need a, a fast exit. So again, founder fit. It was like, I'm wanting to be patient here and plug away at it and try and, and um, uh, work on things that were far out, again, out school, far out of traditional education, yeah. because all everything that had been attempted closer into traditional education hadn't got that breakout success. So we're going to go really far out and we're going to be very patient. And we're also not going to be arrogant. So when you say the mission of Inspire Kids to Love Learning, I can go more into what that, what that means. We didn't start with that. We started with, hey, we're going to build a marketplace focused on consumers um, and we're going to target homeschoolers because that's where there's a lot of innovation happening and people have an urgent need. And we're going to learn. And we're going to spend multiple years just doing that. And then we're going to form our own opinions mission. Because a lot of people coming in from tech into education were like, we know how to solve this. You know, We've learned everything from, from Google. All you need to do is just apply the technology learnings to this new field and, and it, it'll work. And it didn't. And there'd been plenty of flame outs in education, I, I think, for that reason. Where we came in, we were like, we're explicitly not going to have like a a very big vision. We're going to have a broad marketplace. We're going to learn from this initial audience, and and that's how we got started. Uh, and is it working? Yes, to an extent. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I I I think that's uh, yeah. The to an extent bit is 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 you know subject of uh, any point and stuff. It's always to an extent. Um, you know, had you asked me when we started, would be where we are today. I've been like, awesome. It's great. It's been a rough ride to get here. Um, the uh, uh, the kind of key surprises along the way were first um, discovering the uh, live small group live online format. You know, when we started, we we're offering a marketplace of classes. We experimented with in person classes. We experimented experiment with content. Um, and we saw some of these homeschoolers like get together with teachers on Skype and get into small groups to to learn. And we thought, well, that's kind of like a a really really small niche. But hey, why don't we throw you know live classes over video chat up in the marketplace and see what happens? And that part of our our marketplace just took off. Mm. And we started to realize, oh wow, this new format is actually we we thought there'd be a bunch of tech issues. It's actually not as bad as we thought. People are familiar enough with this format. Zoom was just starting to grow. And so the technology was just good enough. The adoption was just good enough. And we started to realize, oh, there's big advantages to this in that it combines the best of in-person interactivity with online availability and convenience. And that parents could pay less for learning experiences and teachers could earn more than other formats because the cost of the teacher's time was split amongst the group mm. and you didn't have to pay for an you know, in-person location. And so the economics, was, but no one had to scale it because it was only just possible. And it was hard to scale because you know you've got a marketplace, you've got live classes. But we succeeded in scaling that once we fully focused on it uh, from 2017 because we picked the right early adopter audience of secular homeschoolers who you know had an urgent need. Um, there were enough of them to solve the initial um, 
a chicken and egg problem that you have in a, in a marketplace and I had sufficient schedule availability to create enough liquidity in the marketplace to start scaling. Right. So that was a big surprise. The second big surprise was COVID. Um, you know, we didn't found this company or decide to do live online classes because we expected there to be a global pandemic. But when the global pandemic hit and schools shut down, yeah, there was this- That must have blown the business up. I mean, there was this, I mean, I, there was a moment in February, 2020, where the CDC issued this notice saying, um, we think schools might have to shut if this gets bad. And they're going to have to move to internet-based teleschooling is the word phrase they use. And I, I locked onto that phrase, like, what the hell do they mean? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> they mean what we do. And at that point, I realized, like, we had more experience than any other company or organization in the US at how to run these classes. And we started doing things like offering free webinars for schools and teachers, but it was a drop in the ocean. And when school closures hit, so many parents kind of came to us. Our business grew 15x um, in 2020. Oh. Yeah, in revenue. No, yeah. Yeah, not, ju not just usage from yeah, a multiple yeah, yeah. Dollar, dollar starting point. So it was a crazy ride. So just keeping the, the wheels in the wagon during that time was, was tough. So that's what I mean about you know, it's great, obviously, for that we were able to help. And it was great for the business, but it was a tough time. And then, of course, you know, as schools reopened, we had a reset in our business. Um, predictable, but hard to hard to get through. And yeah. now we're back onto a more kind of steady growth trajectory. Sustainable um, now. So, you know, very, very happy with how it's going. And, and many of our hypotheses have played out, yeah. but, you know, been a, been a roller coaster to get here. Yeah. Uh, well, I wish you a lot of luck with OutSchool. It's a tremendous mission. Um, let me shift gears, uh, and ask two more questions. So, um, the first one is about your role as a board member. So you're an independent director of someone else's company, not out school, um, script, scribed, scribed. Um, yes. so my question for you about that, because I, I talk to CEOs all the time about the value of sitting on someone else's board. So I would love for you to give, uh, just a super quick answer of, uh, what what is the best thing you get out of being on someone else's board? The change of perspective. Um, you know, it obviously you know, as a as a leader, you always try and see things through other people's eyes, but to actually be in a different seat, looking at a different company that you care about, but aren't as attached to as a founder, just provides like a a, um, a greater level of understanding. And, you know, empathy when dealing with your own board. And, you know, I've learned a tremendous amount um, through it. I would say, you know, it's not something to take on lightly because, you know, the, there's a lot of responsibility, time commitment that comes with it. Um, and, um, you know, I want to do you know, just as good a job for, for that company as I, as I do for, for OutSchool. And so, you know, it's a, it's a big investment, but... Um, at the same time, on a personal level, and and for out of school, I think I've gained a tremendous amount by by being able to see another company up up, up close, um, uh, and yet you know with a certain amount of kind of personal and emotional distance. Um, so um, you know, I, I, I guess I'd recommend it if and only if it's the right time for you personally and the right time um, for your company for you to be able to take that time. Um, but I, th I think it really is a, a win win. I, I would never consider having more than one board seat while also operating my own company. Um, but I really do see it as a win-win because of that, that learning and that change in perspective. Right. 
Um, so my last question for you, as you sort of think about um, the the arc of your career, everything we've talked through today, um, is there a through line you can point to? You know, sort of one one thing that's held it all together? Because I, I love hearing the experiences and like A, which led to B, which led to C, which led to D. But, um, you know, is there is there sort of one driving learning or driving force or driving principle that um, goes from, you know, finishing university through scaling out school? I think, you know, I've had a very varied career and in some ways a, a very non-traditional journey. Um, but I think the through line, which some might might frame as risk-taking, but I, I might call more like naive dump, jumping at the deep end. Like at every turn, I've kind of like taken a harder path or um, a path that in retrospect seemed completely foolish. <laughs> but in aggregate, works for me and um, has taught me a lot. So... I mean, maybe learning actually um, is the thing, because that's what that's what you get as the end result of jumping at the, at the deep end. Um, faster learning at the expense of your own comfort. <laughs> well, look, I think um, you know most most successful founders would agree that having a learning mentality and a growth mentality um, is is a very healthy driving force. So, uh, great note to end on, uh, Amir. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, I love what you're doing at OutSchool, and uh, I'm glad to have a uh, uh, a seat somewhere in the arena to see what's going on with it. So good luck uh, getting the business uh, through growth stage. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking and really glad to work with Boston.